Talk 1110-993-WBT. The Associated Press, Nicholas Riccardi, has a uh, write-up on uh, the seven lessons, I think it's seven, or the takeaways from, I don't know if there are seven. I'm sorry. I shouldn't say seven. I don't know if that's accurate. But they got the takeaways from the Virginia race. And there is one thing I wanted to highlight here. Liberal voting laws are not bad for the GOP, he says. Democrats took control of all parts of Virginia's government in 2019 and steadily started liberalizing the state's voting laws. They made mail voting accessible to all and required a 45-day window for early voting. 45 days for early voting. It's among the longest in the country. This year, they passed a Voting Rights Act that made it easier to sue for blocking ballot access. And so... um, What the writer here is arguing is that the laws in Virginia show that, uh, look, these don't hurt conservatives. Now, uh, I am not a fan of some of the laws that they passed. I'm not generally in favor of making it so easy to vote while not having safeguards to protect the integrity of the election. Um, But I am a supporter of early voting. I do think Republican voters need to understand the tactical advantage of early voting. And I understand I've look, I've been doing this for a while and I, I, I've heard people say like, I go and I vote on election day and that's the only day that we should be voting is on election day. Okay. Shoulda, 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 right? (laughs) This is someone's got a case of the spostas, right? That's just because it was a way years ago doesn't mean that it has to remain so. Again, if there are protections in place, then I am okay with there being increased opportunities to vote. Early voting is one of these ways. And if you want to vote absentee with, you know, no excuse or with excuses, whatever. But you have to understand early voting serves a tactical purpose for people running uh, campaigns. Your vote is now banked. And if anything happens between, you know, the beginning of early voting and election day, so like, let's say, like, for example, Cal Cunningham, right? People went in and voted early for Cal Cunningham. And then, oh, my gosh, the guy's a lech, right? He's got uh, multiple affairs and all of this. And, uh, and then it all explodes. He doesn't get out of the race. People would have preferred maybe to have gotten their ballots back, right? So that's a reason why you would want to wait until election day in case there's any kind of late-breaking news. Fair enough. I understand that argument. I totally get it. Again, this is about risk assessment and that sort of thing, right? So you want to wait till the very end because if something happens, you think it's going to affect your vote. Fine. Now, I would also point out, if you're making this argument as somebody who has always voted a straight ticket, I'm not really buying that argument, but that's a side issue. So let's say you wait that long all the time. You're going to go vote. All right. Well, now let's say something happens and you can't get to the polling station on election day. Then what? Well, you don't vote, right? That's the, that's the risk you run. That's the trade-off, right? You're making a risk assessment. You're making a guess that you're going to be able to get to the polling station on election day and vote. No problems. Uh, and that's why you're not going to go vote early. Okay. But here's the thing. If I go vote early and I encounter the very same problems that you encounter on election day, 
And let's say I can't get there like a car accident, right? Let's say we everything is the same. You and me, all things equal, but I'm going on a Saturday two weeks before Election Day, and you're going on Election Day. And we both get into a car accident, very same car accident. We're both fine. It's okay. Don't worry. But we both get into an accident and got to go to the hospital, got to get checked out. And by the time we get released, we can't make it to the polling place. So now neither of us get to vote on that day. Haha, I get to go and vote the next day. I still have an opportunity to go vote. You, on the other hand, do not, right? Therein lies the advantage of the early voting. You can bank, and as a campaign, as an elected or as a candidate running for office, I get to bank your vote early, right? You go, if you go vote early, now you voted. I don't have to waste any more time making phone calls to you, sending mailers to you. I don't have to worry about you anymore because every single day the Board of Elections tells me who has voted early and who hasn't. And so as soon as, and this is what Obama's campaign was very, very good at doing. They ceased all the phone calls, all the mailings, all of that. They devoted no more resources to you as soon as they knew you voted. That's the ideal situation for a candidate. Again, now that can backfire, and I totally understand this argument, like, because what happens if, you know, it comes out some big scandal and you've already voted early and, oh my gosh, it's true. But if you're always going to vote for the Republican or you're always going to vote for the Democrat, then who cares, right? A scandal isn't going to prevent you from pulling the lever for that person, right? Or maybe you would leave it blank. Okay. So, yes, you do. You got to take a gamble. That's the risk when you vote early. But that's the tactical advantage of voting early. And if Republicans start doing that more, then I don't know. Maybe you start seeing some of these races turn differently all right so that's one thing the other thing last night in virginia i was watching the returns come in and we had a hold up in fairfax county right they said oh we're not going to be able to meet our self-imposed deadline of 8 p.m to have all of the the ballots uh reporting and then at one point they're talking about rescanning stuff all right i implore you democrats election officials, poll workers, right? People who are involved in the elections. Please, for the love of me, please stop having problems in Democrat strongholds. If you want to end the big lie, if you want there to be confidence in the credibility of the election system, please Make sure, if you don't run any other precincts or boxes correctly, please make make it be the Democrat stronghold precincts and boxes. Make them be accurate. Make them be on time. Don't have glitches. Don't have problems. Don't have uh, plumbing problems, water line breaks. Like, make sure that these are the boxes that function smoothly. Because at some point, and we've already passed it, you got to wonder why it's always in the same places. Why is it always the same boxes? Why is it always the same precincts, the same counties? Why are these the ones that always have the problems and they're always the Democrat strongholds? Why is that? Somebody please address this.
If you are in the election system, please, please, for the love of me, please, or somebody else, please pay attention to the big boxes. Pay attention to the big precincts, to the big strongholds that always have problems. I don't care. Devote more resources to them. Whatever has to be done, make sure that they run smoothly. And a lot of these concerns will probably get tamped down, right? Just a suggestion. All right, News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Welcome to the program, the Speaker of the House in North Carolina, Tim Moore. How are you, sir? Doing great, Pete. Good to be with you today, sir. How are you? I am doing well. Uh, so congrats to uh, your Republican uh, Party for the the victories yesterday. So I, I guess you guys got to feel pretty good going into uh, the, the upcoming election season, which I think officially begins today, right? You know, it does. And, and we really... Uh, saw that that what was happening in Virginia was is going to be a pretty strong indicator of what we think will actually happen here in North Carolina. It has consistently gone that way, and it is uh, it, it's it actually mirrors what a lot of our polling uh, shows that we're doing out there that folks you know, realize that the Biden administration is so out of touch, uh, just pushing this absolutely hard left agenda and and a lot of voters are just have have seen it and they've said enough's enough i mean you have long-term incumbents who were defeated by uh, by by newcomers who came in and and just really caught on with with you know, pointing out just some of the failed policies that are out there i mean you you, you as you've talked on your show a lot I mean, you think about the amount of tax increases that are being proposed right now look at inflation uh look at on the foreign policy stage at just how how miserable of a job that that President Biden has done, and you know the Democrats in the Senate, the Democrats in the U.S. House have simply aided and abetted his malpractice as the president. Look at what's happening on the border. Uh, and then, of course, there's this thing where now they want to pay folks who are here illegally what four hundred fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. I mean, just never. But at the same time, stick it to American taxpayers. I mean, these guys have lost their minds, and the American voters are saying, uh, "Enough's enough." And so, I'm looking. I'm really looking forward uh, to these 2022 elections. So, uh, I, I would be remiss if I did not uh, note here that uh, some of your comments there sound almost like you may have an interest in running for Congress. Uh, I'm sure you saw uh, saw the stories about this uh, that were making the rounds in the Raleigh press. So. Uh, are you going to run for Congress? It sounds kind of like you are angling for it. Look, I'll say this. You know, we've, I, I, I'm proud of what we've done in North Carolina. We've reined in government mismanagement. Uh, we've lowered taxes. We've cut regulations. We've done our best to rein in Governor Cooper, although we haven't been able to restrain him as much as we'd like because we don't have, you know, veto-proof majorities. Uh, we have... Uh, uh, we, we've combated illegal immigration at the state level as much as we can. We've uh, done all we can to deal with uh, drug trafficking. Uh, you look at the federal government, it's just a mess every way you, you look there. So, you know, I'm really proud of what we've done uh, here in North Carolina. Uh, I'm going to wait and see and see what's out there. But, uh, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm interested in seeing if we could bring that same kind of uh, conservative view and uh, reforming things to uh, 
uh, to Washington. I'll just say this. Well, we've cleaned up the Democrats' messes that they made here for decades in Raleigh, and uh, maybe we need to try to help clean up some of the messes in Washington. But I'm just going to wait and see for a little bit. All right. So, so I, all right. I'm I'm going to read that a certain way. People can hear it their own way, but um, I, I hear that a certain way. So that's good to know. I appreciate that. But uh, are you now the longest serving Speaker of the House? Are you like at the end of this term? Would that be it? Uh, at the end of this term, I would I would tie the record you would tie uh, that it. was set by by a speaker by a gentleman named Liston Ramsey who yeah. served back in the uh, in the eighties. So yeah, that would. Yeah, that's the most anybody's ever served. So, uh, but it's a, I'll tell you, it's a, it's a great job. But, but what's been really amazing, Pete, though, is that is not just, you know, being here in the seat. It's really being able to be a part of the reform of the state. And if you look at where we were moving along, particularly when McCrory was in the governor's mansion and we were able to not have to worry about vetoes and then, and then in Cooper's first two years when we had veto proof majorities, you know, we were passing a lot of great policy that was really getting the job done and getting us in a good position. And, you know, before COVID-19, I mean, man, we were firing on all cylinders. And even now with with, with dealing with that and, frankly, dealing with a lot of overreaction and excessive mandates from this governor, uh, we have weathered this storm much better than, than these blue states. I mean, we're, we're financially solvent. We have uh, we, we have plenty of money collected. In fact, this budget that we that we're trying to get across the line is going to cut taxes. Uh, the most in, in, you know, in a decade. And so things are in a good position. So really proud of what my colleagues and I have done with the help of the voters and uh, really excited for the next election cycle to see super majorities back in the state house and the state Senate. I think it'll happen. Well, and, and we're going to keep pushing ahead. And it was interesting to listen to Glenn Youngkin's speech last night in Virginia. And I recognize like on the one hand, a lot of people are happy but on the other hand, it's like this is now a competitor to North Carolina because some of the stuff that he was saying sounded like uh, direct competition for what North Carolina has been doing now for the last decade. And um, I mean, I know we just uh, what we just came in first in some business ranking. Um, and so, yep. like, I, I, this is the stuff that's going to animate Virginians. So obviously, that's got to be on North Carolina's uh, radar. Look, as a good free market conservative, I think the more competition, the better. You know why? The more that we can have competition out there, it's going to force government to be uh, to, to be more more responsive, which I would say means less regulations, less taxes, uh, more individual freedom, more more opportunity for business growth and entrepreneurship. And you know what? Hey, if that's the case, and that's what happens, we're all winners, Pete. Mm-hmm. Um. You mentioned also the the COVID stuff. Um, there was a uh, uh, there was apparently what there's a debate about what to do with all the extra money from the federal government. Where do we stand on that? Is there is there any opportunity? I've I've been getting messages from people asking tie. Is there a way to prevent the federal funds from getting tied to vaccine mandates and such? Oh yes. So, so that, that's been floating around out there. We heard some folks uh, that were. Concerned that the uh, that the that the use or the expenditure of the ARP funds or the CARES Act funds would somehow obligate North Carolina or any state to enforce some of these r- ridiculous mandates, like this this you know this so-called executive order from President Biden, which is is a unconstitutional, b ineffective, and simply divisive, and it's just nothing that's there. Let me be very clear: 
just like Texas, just like Florida, uh, the, who took art funding and spent it as well and have, by the way, great, strong uh, conservative governors. North Carolina is going to use the money. We're not going to send it to New York or somewhere else. Uh, but we're going to we're going to spend it on one, you know on things that aren't going to obligate us you know for long term. We're not going to create entitlements, and we're also not going to just you know just bow down and follow what Biden or the folks at the federal level try to tell us to do. Uh, if they try to mandate some of that, all I can say is they'll see us in court. We're going to you know, we, we we respect the rule of law of this state, and we respect the individual liberty of our citizens. So folks don't have to worry about that. In fact. Uh, we actually today had the first of our what's called government operations oversight committees that is asking a lot of tough questions uh, of the governor's administration, Department of Health and Human Services, uh, and other agencies about why they've imposed whatever mandates and restrictions, such as the business closures, et cetera. Uh, what authority do they think they had for it? Uh, can they prove that, it, that, that some of these things did any good? Uh, how have they spent the money? Have they spent it properly? Is it, you know, is it showing a benefit? And really just trying to ask, get a lot of data out there and ask tough questions because, you know, the people, they want, they want to know answers. And guess what? The taxpayers who are footing the bill deserve to know the answers. And so we're going to keep asking those because, uh, we think that the people of the state deserve to know and we think that government should only act uh, as necessary uh, and proper and not exceed its authority. We still got budget, we got redistricting, but we'll leave it for next week because I suspect both of those issues will probably still be hot <laughs> in another way. Well, and we're and we're <laughs> and we're going to give final passage to the uh, to the maps on redistricting tomorrow. So all, all right. that, at least at the legislative standpoint, will be done. But uh, I would anticipate, that from what I'm hearing, there'll be lawsuits and uh, and the the story will continue. Well, I think somebody's already sued. Right? They've already filed suit. You, they don't even you only don't even have maps yeah, yet. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't know if you were, if you shared this with your listeners or not. And I don't want to go longer in our segment, but it's really interesting. You actually had a group of folks. Now get this: who sued because they wanted us to take race into account in drawing districts. Last time I checked, there was litigation that went all the way up to the federal courts that said, "Don't take race into account," and we haven't taken race into account, and we're not. But but after all that, then a then a leftist group sues telling us to take race into account. I, 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 you just can't make this stuff up. Right. <laughs> they uh, so, they yeah. want you to take race into account just enough for it to help them. That's the that's what they mean by fair maps. So that's what I have there, learned. There, there you go. <laughs> I, it's, yeah, it's amazing, by the way, how the media never talks about the, quote, fair maps out of, like, Illinois and California. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And what, uh, what is it? Uh, I think Elias is now. Yeah, Mark Elias is threatening a lawsuit over this very, uh, very same thing now. It's just, it's amazing. Um, well, we kept you longer than anticipated. I appreciate you making time for us as always, and we'll talk with you next week, sir. Great, Pete. Good to be with you. All right, take care. That is the Speaker of the House, Tim Moore. We now head over to the WBT News Center with Mark Garrison. I mentioned this with the Speaker of the House. North Carolina now ranks number one for business climate. Climate. Uh, business climate. One of North Carolina's competitive advantages for several years has been its 2.5% corporate tax rate. That is the lowest of the 44 states that live that levy such a tax. Uh, Site Selection Magazine ranks North Carolina number one in the country. 
for its latest business climate rankings. The magazine noted that North Carolina's tax policies in particular helped propel the state to the top of the rankings. Uh, So yay us. But this also, I'm not kidding, like I was listening to uh, Yunkin's speech last night and the stuff he's talking about, like I was kind of hearing the footsteps here from now Virginia. Because, like, we've been doing this stuff in North Carolina for a while, and it's been easy because we got Virginia. It's like, <laughs> Virginia, what are they doing out there? Good Lord, they're crazy. And now, like, oh, wait a minute, they're going to start cutting taxes now, too? Oh, this isn't good. They're going to start competing with us? Oh, no. Right? Kind of worried. Let me see here. Uh, Chuck, what's going on? Chuck, how are you? Welcome. Hello, are you there, Chuck? Yeah, I'm not hearing anything from Chuck. All right, we're going to put you on hold. Not sure why, but I think that's my agent. I think that's my agent uh, calling. One of, the, one of the things I also need to point out here that helpfully Jim Garrity pointed out first at National Review, uh, that this is, in Virginia, what we saw, the last gasp of the Clinton legacy. The last gasp of the Clinton legacy. It's easy to forget that Terry McAuliffe's role in elected office in Virginia is almost entirely because of his past relationship with the Clintons, right? His connection to the Clintons, in the words of the Washington Post, a, quote, friendship as close as family. McAuliffe was co-chairman of President Bill Clinton's 96 re-election campaign, chairman of the DNC from 01 to 05, chairman of the Hillary Clinton campaign in 08. As governor, he threw himself into the role of campaign surrogate in 2016 for Hillary, Clinton was doing fundraisers. Bill Clinton was doing fundraisers for Terry McAuliffe in 2021. Being a friend or former team member of the Clintons hasn't always paid big dividends at the ballot box. Only a handful of figures in Clinton's inner circle and cabinet succeeded in their bids for office. And the ones who won often encountered their own scandals. So you had former chief of staff Erskine Bowles. He lost two Senate races here in North Carolina. In 2002, as well as 2004, you had Robert Reich, Janet Reno, Donna Shalala, Bill Richardson, Rahm Emanuel, right? All of them ran. Janet, I forgot Janet Reno ran for governor. Remember that? Lost in the primary. Donna Shalala actually did win a seat in Florida in 2018. She ran for Congress, won uh, in the House of Representatives, but um, then lost in 2020. And Bill Richardson, he got two terms as governor of New Mexico, had to pull out of the uh, Obama uh, as a nominee for his uh, secretary of commerce. Remember that? Because he had ties to a company that did business, just <laughs> like ethics and stuff. And Rahm Emanuel. But, but that's it. Like the Clinton crowd, like Rahm Emanuel is the last one. All the rest of the Clintonistas are gone. Except for George Stephanopoulos. He's still on TV. He'll be there for a while, I'm sure. But... They're out of uh, public office now. And I say good riddance. We have finally gone through it. It only took like, what, 30 years. Hey, quick reminder, we have teamed up with Charlotte Mechanical to help folks get warm this winter. So if you got a coat, give it to me. Give me give me your coat. All right, give me a new coat or a like new coat. Doesn't have to be right off of your back. I mean, if you love me, you will. But... You can donate it through the 704 Coat Drive. There are barrels around town. You can also uh, make a monetary donation to benefit the Salvation Army of Greater Charlotte. It is online at 704coatdrive.com. 
704coatdrive.com. Uh, and uh, thank you. Appreciate it. So John Sexton at hotair.com had a, a, a good write-up on this uh, response to Greg Sargent, who writes at the Washington Post. He's a columnist. And Greg Sargent uh, did this piece that's just ridiculous. And he makes this argument that Glenn Youngkin's repulsive final push reveals a dark truth for Democrats and the dark truth for Democrats. And so you're going to hear this because this is the talking point is that the left apparently has no power and no answer for the right wing media. That somehow or another, it's the left that can't get its message out. (laughs) Right. This is ridiculous. It's this is ridiculous. For months, Yunkin and his allies have pumped that raw right-wing sewage directly into the minds of the GOP base behind the backs of moderate swing voters via a right-wing media network that has no rival on the Democratic side. No rival. There's no rival to the right-wing machine. And what is he talking about, this, right, this raw right-wing sewage? Critical race theory. That's the CRT stuff. This is what he's talking about. Now, I actually saw there was a clip from this Morning Joe, uh, the Morning Joe program on MSNBC. And actually, sit down for this. It's true, though. But Scarborough had a really good point, I thought, which is either the CRT stuff is true or it's not, right? Like it's being taught or it's not. It's in the curriculum or it's not. If you're a candidate, just politically speaking, just, just ignore whether... CRT is there or not, right? Just ignore that. Just think in terms of a politician. You're running for office. If CRT is being taught in school and you don't have a response to this line of attack, then that's on you, right? That's on you. You you need to have a response. But more importantly, if it's, as they say, that it's not being taught in schools, how do you not have a response to that except to call parents racists or something. I don't understand. Like this is, this is malfeasance, right? Like somebody who was involved in the campaign was supposed to have come up with some sort of response to this line of argument. Cause it's not a new line of argument. It's been going on for a while and nobody came up with a response. So that that's not on the right wing media echo chamber. That's not on them. That's on you as a, political candidacy you guys need to and and democrats you're going to need to come up with some better argument now personally i know crt principles are in k-12 i've i've seen them i've talked about them for over a year so i know they're there so i'm interested to hear your approach to this argument besides just telling me i'm racist and i don't know what i'm talking about and what do you define crt like these are the responses that you typically get So I am very interested to hear what the counter argument will actually uh, sound like. The idea that the left has no answer to Fox News and right wing media is absurd, says John Sexton at hotair.com. The left has literally everything else. He says uh, to make an obvious point, Greg Sargent himself, along with Paul Waldman and Jennifer Rubin, they're all just at the Washington Post. Right? So they got three columnists that are at one newspaper. They put out multiple pieces every day. And this particular sewage, he says, are the complaints over critical race theory. 
And while media may be pretending, as Sargent is here, that uh, this is all some sort of a, a new issue that all of a sudden the right-wingers are have taken up, it's not a new issue. I mentioned this earlier. Like, we were mocking the, the cry closets years ago. We were mocking these, uh, you know, the, the, the woke pronouners and stuff. This is not new. It may be new to you because you haven't been made aware of this stuff or, more likely, you didn't see anything wrong with it. It didn't strike you as odd or weird. You just, you know, you just watched... Uh, Steven Crowder making his trips to university campuses uh, with his change my mind segments on YouTube. And you don't think that there's any problem going on there. It's just some right winger doing a PR stunt. But what conservatives saw was that, oh, my gosh, like these college kids are nuts. Evergreen University, Evergreen College. That's the, that was sort of like the big turning point with Eric Weinstein, right? You got these professors that are run off of campus, and these are not right wingers. These are liberal professors that get run off campuses because they say, "No, no, it's okay. You can dress in Halloween costumes, stuff like that." Right? So uh, this is all like, "Oh, Pete, that's not critical race theory." CRT is is more than the Harvard Law School uh, lessons. It's more than just that school of thought. And I didn't make it more than that. Kimberly Crenshaw and the proponents of CRT made it more than that. Ibram X. Kendi made it more than that. Robin D'Angelo made it more than that. And the teachers and the administrators, they've made it more than that. They teach this in the, in the colleges to people wanting to be teachers. I mentioned it before, CMS spent taxpayer money to bring Ibram X. Kendi via Zoom to talk to all of their administrators. What do you think the point of that is? This is a book club. They, they first tell everybody to go out and read his book, How to Be Anti-Racism, where he says the only uh, response or the solution to discrimination of the past is discrimination now. That's his argument. Oh, Pete, you're taking him out of context. That's literally what he says. Literally what he says. Anyone who's currently claiming the right's concern over critical race theory is some brand new invention that's somehow being foisted upon them by Fox News clearly does not know what they're talking about. Right? The people on the right, myself included here, right? We've been talking and writing about this specific strain of woke illiberalism for many, many years, it's all part of the universe of dumbassery, okay? It's all part of the same soup. Now, true, John Sexton says we didn't always label it critical race theory in every case, but if you were actually paying attention, you see it's all the same worldview. What the students were channeling in 2017 at Evergreen College it's the same stuff anti-racist trainers like Robin D'Angelo and Ibram X. Kendi are pushing now in their best-selling books. This isn't a new concern on the right. It is a long-standing one. Finally, it's worth repeating that the left invariably and intentionally confuses right-wing pushback to whatever extremism they're promoting with a new fight in the culture war. In this case, as in most others, the pushback is not the start. It's not the beginning of the fight here. The insurgency by the leftist ideologues is where the fight started. 
Conservatives are saying no. Conservatives are saying no to some of what the left is currently demanding. That's not the beginning of the culture war. I mean, not to sound all juvenile, but you guys started it. All right. Brett Winterbull is coming up next. Stay tuned for that on News Talk 1110-993-WBT. I will chat with you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.